You're listening to The Media Narrative. I'm Rob Hoschel. Today's guest, Doug Glanville, is perhaps known as much for being a writer as he is a former Major League Baseball player. His column for The New York Times focuses on the humanity and social impact of sport. He's also built an impressive reputation as an educator, speaker, and community advocate. But as a Phillies fan, I couldn't help but start out with baseball. Well, Doug Glanville, it's a thrill to get this time with you. Thank you so much. Uh, like you, I grew up a Phillies fan, and as a former Little League center fielder, I was a huge Gary Maddox fan, and I see you uh, in his legacy as, as a player uh, and beyond uh, community work and all of that. I also had a fascination for athletes who seemed intelligent and well-rounded. I thought it was the coolest thing that you went to Penn and studied engineering, which, by the way, so did my dad. He went to Penn and he studied engineering. Um, did you ever feel like having an Ivy League education set you off from other ball players, many of whom never went to college? You know, I found the environment just professionally uh, in something that turned out to be a positive. It, it was a challenge initially getting drafted and they were sort of wondering like my level of commitment that was that was the question a lot of the scouts asked me they were saying well you know are you going to really go all in here when you you know can go back to school and and you know graduate and do something else so um you know but I always respected my dad was from Trinidad and I remember at his funeral uh, 12 well now it's about 15 years ago they talked about the multiple intelligentsia kind of flavor the idea of having this great respect that there's so many forms of intelligence. And I learned a lot from different kinds of players that came, grew up in farms, grew up in Santo Domingo, didn't matter. And I, I think that respect and sort of uh, exuding that respect came back in a way that you know, I felt very comfortable and fit in very well. And, and it was reciprocal in terms of the knowledge gained from not only just the game side of it, but the uh, experiential side of life. And, uh, so it was it was a good environment. I mean, I think the managers, the coaches, are a little bit more skittish about, am I going to question authority? I always used to say, well, how do I think I know everything but ask too many questions at the same time? It was always that kind of battle. But over time, certainly when I got to the major leagues, it was it, it became a, a strong asset. Yeah, you seem to be have been the kind of ball player that asked a lot of questions to try to get an advantage, but sometimes that wasn't always received the way you thought it should absolutely and, and you think about baseball structure it's a little bit different than you know getting drafted in college and going right to the nfl you have this rite of passage so to speak coming up through the minor leagues you run into different philosophies different coaches you, you gel with some you, you have friction with others so there's no no doubt that back then it was word of mouth it wasn't sort of the internet fashion like okay let's put a report on, on this guy and then the triple a manager the double a manager you they passed it on sometimes you got labels I was definitely the one that asked questions or, uh, you know, had my very nonchalant pace. And it took a while for that to turn into something that they saw as an asset. Uh, but, but once again, the major leagues is often a great equalizer. As they say in Bull Durham, you know, if you have fungus on your shoes in the minors, you're a slob. In the big leagues, it's considered colorful. So, <laughs> uh, so I, I think my color came once I got to the big leagues and parents were happy about my sort of well-rounded background. And the cerebral side, quote unquote, helped me study pitchers and study patterns, and and certainly defense. It was a, it was a great asset. How was it an asset on defense? Well, you know, just learning the the tendencies and the trends of how your pitcher is approaching a hitter, where the catcher is setting up, uh, all the analytics we see today. 
is stemmed from the era where you just had spray charts and it was sort of basic. Here's where guys hit the ball. Now you have all these analytics behind it. And I was always thinking through that beforehand, but there was the tools didn't exist. And, you know, two strike approach, moving over how to back up angles, vectors, uh, ballistics, even uh, that wow. was, I love that. I thought it was fascinating. And I, and I studied it uh, pretty, pretty much in depth. Have you ever gotten back into thinking about engineering as a possible career path? You know, I've, I've thought about it. I, I went into real estate for a while post-career, and I describe it as moderately disastrous. <laughs> uh, so I did some project management and, and sort of housing design. So that was a little bit of taste. But the engineering type, I, I, I majored in system science and engineering. So that discipline was always well-rounded. It saw the world in a systematic way, and the dots were connected from the standpoint of seeing, you know, it was holistic. So for example, I did transportation engineering, but it wasn't just being in a lab and designing a great train. It was about understanding passenger psychology, economics of cities, public policy, you know, all these elements. And I enjoyed tying it all together. So that discipline or that approach I felt was universal in terms of being able to use those skill sets in any industry, in any profession. And I think baseball was no different. Back in 2010, you published a really terrific memoir called The Game From Where I Stand. Uh, And I just want to read a a sentence from the introduction. You wrote, the book is my attempt to open up the hidden world of baseball players to reveal the human side of the game and the human side of the men who play it. Why was that your mission statement for the book? And what are some of those revelations about the humanity of the game and its people that you wrote about? Well, you you underscored it. It's, It's about people. And I believe the unique element of baseball was around the relationships and the day-to-day interaction and interplay uh, between players, the fans, the game. It's, it's special in baseball. It's not this once a week flavor. It's not here and there. You're out there every single day. And those experiences and lessons are very translatable to everyday life. And, and my writing kind of bloomed in that space of connecting the dots between uh, everyday life, what every all of us experience, whether parenting or fatherhood, all these different elements, uh, to things that exist in in the world of baseball as a player. So I wanted to bring that out, and and part of it was on the heels of the steroid era, the the PEDs, which was central in my career, and seeing that there became this wall between players and and the fans, because baseball was always that game, like oh well. I, you know, oh, I could have played that. I stopped in high school, but if I played a little longer, it was much more relatable than being seven feet tall in basketball or 400 pounds in football. And, and the humanity was that bridge which started to fray with steroids because all of a sudden you had supermen hitting balls across the street and it, it disconnected not just the game, but people's ability to relate to the game. And I wanted to bring that back. And I found that the humanity, the human interest stories was the way to accomplish that. You wrote a New York Times column in May relating to Adam Jones and the racial epithets he heard from fans during a game at Boston's Fenway Park this season. Uh, it's a great piece. You hit some big points in a very short op-ed touching on baseball history, this incident itself, your own experiences. And near the end, you wrote about the importance of seeing oneself in the fans who were ejected. Can you say more about that? Well, you know, it goes back to the sense of the humanity in the game and some of the lessons it's imparted, uh, you know, through fandom and through various uh, elements. The the sort of interplay between 
fans and players can be volatile, certainly. It could expose a lot of things that got exposed in this um, Adam Jones incident. And where I come down is, like, I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, which was one of the first and considered a pioneer in voluntary desegregation in the 60s. And one of the things I gained from that is understanding and walking in everyone's shoes. Not sort of picking and choosing, but understanding and seeing ourselves in, in our, our colleagues, our friends, our family, strangers, whoever it may be. And we had many different walks of life existing harmoniously in many regards in Teaneck growing up. And, you know, the core of whether racism or expressions of, of, as we call, hate crimes, different things, the core in there stems from the bias that's all within us. It's just how much the fuel is poured onto it and, and how people express it. And certainly certain things are more heinous than others, but the core of it is a lack of understanding, a lack of, of you know, respect, fear. There's all these things that roll into this that can turn it into something extre- extremely explosive. And, but we all have bias. Right? We all have bias. We all have our ways that we have shortcuts in assessing people or situations. Most of the time, and this I gained from working on the police council here uh, in Connecticut, most of which that bias, those shortcuts are assets in many regards. It's, it's how we, when we drive home and we don't even know how we made those left turns since it's automatic, those are, those are biases. We have assumptions as to what's next, assumptions as to when we turn the wheel, this is what's going to happen. So, but when they come to people, it's, very, it's flawed. And it brings in a lot of the societal issues, the institutional issues, history, all these different flavors that come in. But it comes from the same place. Uh, and I think, you know, so I wanted to express that if we're really going to understand it, we need to listen. We need to sort of see that there are way, ways that the way they expressed it may not be something that's uh, positive or, you know, or supportive or help. But at the same time, it comes from places that, uh, exists in all of us. If if and if we leave it unchecked and we're not challenged and we let it go off the rails, yeah, it can turn into that. It can turn into an Adam Jones experience, and uh, and I don't feel we gain or move forward if we're like, oh, these people are horrible. Put them in a box, and we're like pristine. I don't think that solves anything. You have to understand more where people are coming from, and engage, and and I, I believe that therein lies a lot more of the solutions uh, or at least the improvement in our society. Are you concerned then about some people who are voicing an opinion that Adam Jones is exaggerating or as your baseball brother, Kurt Schilling said that he was lying. What's your response to that side of the equation? Yeah, Well, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. Certainly it's uh, walking in people's shoes. You listen and, um, I think you have to be very careful because what it does is it spins back to some of the frustrations and issues of people who are disenfranchised or subject to institutional or different forms of racism or whatever um, ways that they're suppressed or sort of subjugated in certain levels, right? Because there's always that blow-off thing like, well, that didn't really happen or, you know, when I've been blown off by taxes, oh, it's a figment of your imagination, I think when you're dismissive, it, it, it can be very dangerous. Now, when you're making accusations on people, sure, you, you, have to, you should have to prove it if it's the severity of, of uh, Adam Jones' experience. Uh, it seems like a lot of people, there were plenty of witnesses and you know, plenty of evidence, but, uh, so you have to be careful being dismissive because it starts to leak into that frustration that many people feel when they're in this position of 
being disenfranchised or sort of victimized by you know hate or different experiences and it's not just in someone lobbing the n-word at you it's there's institutions that you deal with all the time whether it's trying to buy a house or whether you know banking you know it, this it, it undermines that when you don't realize that this is a uh, a comprehensive experience and not just you know one moment or one person or, or a group of fans now have you spoken to adam jones about this incident i have i've had definitely interactions with adam and i talked to him well even before this incident we had been talking quite a bit about um why he why players are reluctant to speak out on social justice issues which was kind of interesting how vocal he's become over the last probably year and a half or so but um you know and we've exchanged text and email and different conversations over the years but certainly in regards to this particular incident uh you know he's he's really raised the bar now i mean he really feels empowered to speak on these issues and the idea of staying in your lane or shut up and play is often how you don't make progress when you have a, a voice that resonates with people. It's sort of, certainly it can have risk and you could alienate fans and so on. But, you know, he's, he's taking it on. And I'm, I'm proud that he's bringing and raising and elevating the conversation. There was a New York Times article about Steve Kerr, the coach of the Golden State Warriors, a little while back, and he talked about politics quite a bit. I'm wondering if you see differences between the sports in the way the players and the fans talk about and around social issues of social justice and politics, baseball versus basketball. Do you see any differences there? There's definitely a difference. And one of the things, I interviewed a series of players from Sean Doolittle, Adam Jones, um, David Ortiz, just talking about the question, like, well, why is it difficult to speak out on these issues? I mean, I get it. I played, so I understand it is challenging. I wanted to hear the, the 2017 version of that. And, uh, you know, I got a range of answers, but they all fell in, in line with uh, this, this daily effect, right? That's what's different with baseball. Every day you have to face fans. Every day uh, you have to engage your teammates. There's, there's a different level than playing, say, in the NFL where once a week you're out there and in, 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 on the stage. So when you're on the stage every day, it's a different animal. And um, you have to be very aware of the impact on what you say, and you're going to have to respond to that every day, as Adam Jones pointed out. It's like, well, I can't just say it once. You know, I have to deal with this, and I'm eventually going to say something wrong or not in the way I wanted to. Uh, you're dealing with the questions on sponsorships. And, and even in spring training, a lot of uh, a few GMs and owners were kind of like, you know, hey, you're kind of on your own on this topic, right? So now you go back to Jackie Robinson 70 years ago, and you're glad that he didn't stay in his lane. You're glad that Roberto Clemente didn't stay in his lane. Uh, you know, it's it's nice to be entertained, right? You go to a concert. You don't want to hear all. You just want to be, you want to listen to the music. That's it. And I get that. Uh, but it, it eliminates the humanity of these players and actually the impact they can have to challenge our society. And so many great things or changes have occurred because of that in, in every industry and every sport. And I thought it was interesting, the University of Wisconsin player writing about how, well, you know, we don't ask physicians or, you know, lawyers to stay in their lane. We don't ask, you know, people, it's interesting the, how that bar is. So baseball is different than those other sports because it has that, that day-to-day impact where it's available and accessible and it follows a news cycle so to speak because it is its own news cycle it has that type of timeline and it creates sometimes greater responsibility 
which is why it makes it even more challenging for players to really find their footing within that world to express out, you know, outrage or issues of social justice. So let's switch gears just a little bit. You, uh, I want to ask about your work at the New York Times, and, and you've also written columns for time.com and, and other places. By my count, though, you've written about 100 columns for the Times uh, since you retired from the game. So two questions. Were you always interested in writing, and how did this Times gig start? Well, I was always interested in writing. I mean, it, it came from my my dad was, uh, even though he was a psychiatrist by trade, he wrote a lot of poetry. And at first I kind of kicked it around and I was decent at it, but I eventually found home in, in the essay and writing more of a narrative essay, telling a story, uh, humanizing an experience and making it sort of relatable. I found a lot of comfort. And I, you know, I love writing dedications and connecting what seemed to be disparate concepts. And so that was something that evolved. And my, um, my first foray, I guess, into the New York Times, it actually started with ESPN. I was really concerned about the commentary around uh, PEDs in baseball, the steroid era. And the Mitchell Report came out and it exposed all these players and it listed names and it had evidence. And I was watching and reading about the discussion around it, and it was very much name-calling and name-naming. It was just like, that was the interest. And there was a whole space missing in there that was like, well, why do these players actually choose to take PEDs? What's the motivation? What is it in the fabric of the culture on why they feel this is necessary or why it's hidden? And I knew that firsthand. I was a union rep for years. I was on the executive subcommittee of the union. I, I worked on the drug policy. And I played for teams that were most exposed, like, you know, Texas Rangers had guys that were implicated and, uh, you know, whether Alex Rodriguez and so on. So uh, that, it gave me a a space that I owned and I was fairly singular in in my area of expertise around it. And so I wrote about it, but I always wanted to write in the lens of, hey, let's understand where these players are coming from. And then maybe we can decide something from that point, whether it's the threat of losing your job the existential uh, finality of, uh, of just playing this blink of a career, uh, you know, whatever it may be that drives players to be highly competitive, but also highly insecure about their ability to maintain the level of play required to be the best in the world for any period of time. And, and it wasn't a hall pass, but it was also an understanding, a deeper understanding of the, the player experience. And, and it did well. And, and I remember, so that was in the ESPN. I had Alan Swartz, a, a friend of mine who went to Penn and also was a colleague and wrote for, write, wrote for the New York Times. He said, you got to come to the Times and pitch him on this, pitch him on something. So I prepared a long list of ideas, of stories that I know there were going to happen in the season. Players, you know, wife is going to have a baby and they're going to have to miss time or whatever, looking for an apartment, trying to date when you're single and have millions or whatever. And I went into these stories and I pitched the times on they're like, hey, great, go run with it. And, and that's where it started. And, and then I realized, well, wait a minute, can I even do this? Like they were talking about once a week and I'd, I'd just written one column. I didn't really know if I could keep up that level of, of uh, you know, production, but it, it drove me. And it was an honor to my dad who, who had passed by then. But at the same time, I was so thrilled at the feedback. And I, I was amazed how reciprocal the experience was. You know, I thought he'd write and then, you know, but then it was like feedback and 
And people at the times were taking it to new places. They were writing comments. They were emailing me. It was remarkably reciprocal and therapeutic in a lot of ways. Um, you know, losing my dad at the last game of the season in 2002 it was tough. And I was close to my father. And I felt like it was honoring him in some ways. It was a paper. He read the Times all the time. <laughs> so, um, so I found this beautiful space of having one passion and finding a passion of expression to come together and humanizing in a way that brought people in this collaborative space where we saw each other in each other. I, I, I loved it. And uh, obviously I've been doing it ever since. And hopefully continue. It, it's really great to see those columns in the times. And, and when I read your book and I read those columns, I can't help but think a little bit about Jim Bouton's ball four, which I believe you mentioned yes. in the book and what sort of connections, if any, do you see between the work that you're doing and the work that he did? Yeah, Jim Bowden. I mean, I know Jim Bowden because he, he was in Teaneck for many years where I grew up. So I was a Yankee, and he, I think he shared a, an office building with my dad. And, you know, so we, wow. he uh, taught me a pitch, actually, when I was in high school. So, huh. you know, and I faced him, ironically, when he was in his 50s, I think. Wow. So Bowden um, is, you know, special in that regard. Well, the way he connected, well, one of the things I did before I got deep into the book is I read everything I could. I wanted to just get a sense of, the landscape of, of books and, you know, Buzz Bissinger and, you know, even Alyssa Milano. I, I just touched on everything. And, and I, I really liked her book, by the way, mm-hmm. too. So, um, but then, of course, there were just the, the great writers and columnists of, of our time. So there was, uh, you know, there was quite a bit of research just to get ready for this book. And Ball Four was such a revolutionary book. It, and, you know, it irreverent and just call it like it is and violated every etiquette of, you know, don't sort of kiss and tell, like baseball secrets, right? You don't tell. And the the idea of uh, Jim Brosnan was another one, like put it in the book, right? Uh, you know, when you hit a home run off someone, you say you put him in your book. Mm-hmm. Well, that came from these authors, Brosnan and, and uh, Bouton, sitting there writing about all these things, and players were wondering, what is he putting? Well, put that in your book, right? That was <laughs> so, so they, they, they were, they, they created a cultural revolution of sorts that it was very dangerous, and he got, banned and exiled from the Yankees. And and I was also moved by his son because I think his daughter was killed in a car accident and it was tragic. And I think in the book he referred to like the most indestructible person I know. She had like this long title in the book. And the the son wrote an editorial for the New York Times, I believe, trying to re- get him reinstated with the Yankees. And they, they acquiesced, of course, because it was sort of like, can we, he was sort of like, can we bury the hatchet now? He's been through all these things. and So that was very moving to me. So all that together, uh, especially him being from uh, living in my hometown, it, it made for an inspiring way to reveal. So the similarities were a revelation. He did it differently, you know, certainly more in your face, a little crass if he right. needed to be. Uh, I, I tried to preserve the secrecy, but also revealing things that people didn't know and, and, and I did it by calling everybody who was mentioned in that book to be like, is this okay? It's going to be revealing, but I want to know. And they actually added to the book. Carl Everett was great. He's like, hey, I'll tell you more, even though I, I look like a villain a little bit. Uh, so that was really helpful to make it transparent and revealing without compromising certain things. You just mentioned several books and writers that you have a lot of respect for. Uh, I wonder what else you can say about your media-consuming habits. Are there uh, other writers or websites, television, other sources that you are your go-to these days? Well, you know, I 
I, I'm big on, well, I, I love world affairs. I, I, I watch Fareed Zakaria, GPS, as much as I can on CNN. CNN, I, I watch, but I'm open to a lot of things. I, I go back to the point you mentioned seeing ourselves and those fans in Boston. Well, I, I try to listen to all perspectives. Uh, doesn't Republican debates, Democratic debates, I watch both of them. I just try to understand, and I think it informs us to be open to that. That that's my approach. So the same thing holds true in how I digest information and news. Uh, the social media world is so explosive, and that was an adjustment for me as a writer. Coming, uh, my book came out. They were like, "You need a Twitter account." You need, you know, I had to get onto the social media world, and it took a while, but I'm comfortable with it as a tool, just like as an engineer. It's not the technology; it's how we use the tool, and it still has so many assets if you use it responsibly. And, and it's worked out, you know, very well for me. To from posting photos from Cuba to wherever, uh, different experiences I've had that were unique. So, um, so I digest it through all these different um, media outlets, and whether social or, um, you know, reading the Times, you know, which I still do, you know, fairly religiously, and uh, all of it's been, you know you know, shaped sort of how I express because it, it, it evolves so much and like how you reach people changes so much. And, uh, you know, being in the media industry myself, I've, I've always been in tune with that because I've had to understand like what will reach people. And, but you always have that battle of going for what's convenient and quick and headline worthy that lasts, you know, five minutes versus something sustainable and being patient and framing issues and not necessarily being first online. That's that's always a challenge uh, for you know, writers and in media, uh, making sure that it's vetted and versus like, oh, I got to get this video up because, you know, video is so king um, that that it can trump your ability to get to the deeper, deeper place uh, and interpretive space. So, uh, but I've been holding firm on it and so far so good. Terry Francona. Tito, uh, no. a, a lot of people n- know him as the guy who finally led the Red Sox to their first World Series championship in 86 years. When you had him as your manager, those were those were more difficult years for him in some ways, I suppose, because you guys didn't win as many games yeah. um, as the Red Sox did. Anyway, what did you learn about life from Philly's manager, then Philly's manager, Terry Francona? Enjoy it. You know, have fun, laugh, tell jokes. I mean, keep it light. He he was a great manager to, to come up in your young years because he just, you know, he was always keeping guys loose and smiling. And I also learned about protecting others. He, he would lay in the road, very self-deprecating, but he'd do it in a way, excuse me, to protect the integrity of the relationship. He would take the heat for anybody. And all he wanted to do was play hard, you know, respect the game and play hard. He, it was like, you can't control the outcome where you hit the ball. And it was only a matter of time. Once he got the tactical side of the games, he was going to be amazingly successful because he was so good with people and so in tune. And I learned a lot about how important that is and that it really is the most important thing than, than anything to be a great manager. You wrote about your brother Ken a lot in the book. He comes up. What sort of impact has he had on you? Oh, just deep impact. He, first of all, his passion for life and passion for the game. You know, he, he was, he wore his heart on the sleeve and, and most of my family was pretty cerebral and, you know, my mom, uh, academic teacher, my dad, psychiatrist, so you can imagine the thoughtfulness. Uh, my brother was like, you know, he was the guy who just followed his passion, loved baseball and is still playing at 54, you know, he's just, wow. a, 
And he, he also kept his stats from like birth. And at one point, I think he stole his 1,000th base or something in, in like a summer league in North Carolina. And I had the base over his head and all this. And of course, nobody knew what he was doing, <laughs> but he knew. Um, so just, you know, he loved the game and he was, he protected me. He, he definitely kept it positive, never said harsh words to me, even though I was a younger brother that ended, ended up playing this wonderful career in, in Major League Baseball. That was a dream of his. Always fair and supportive and loyal and just, you know, a great example. I always was inspired by chasing him, wanting to be him. And that gave me my competitive spirit. Doug Glanville, what's, what's next for you? You're kind of in this transitional moment. What's ahead for you? What are some of the possibilities? Well, you know, I'm excited. It's, it's, there's a glass half full here. I mean, anytime you're transitioned from something out of your hands and, and you're moved on when you're not thinking it's going to happen, it's tough. I mean, I, gave, um, I was at ESPN for seven years, and they were, I learned a, a plethora of ways to express ideas. It was fantastic in that regard. So I'm trying to build on that. And, and so what's next is thinking about my dream jobs, thinking about what my core passions of. I love writing. I, I want to find ways to make that more central. And you know, so I'm exploring that. I, I love the game and its ability to be this, um, this sort of access point to social justice, to change, to uh, collaborative, bringing people together. I'd love to explore ways to be more of an ambassador in that regard. Uh, and I, what I actually like more, even beyond engaging fans, is, is the policy side. I really, I've done a lot in Connecticut working on policy with legislators, and, and that's, that's been fascinating, lobbying for different issues. I, I like that I, because baseball, once it enters the conversation, is amazingly disarming, and it it's amazingly brings people together, Republican, Democrat, whatever. That space can be a huge asset in addressing some of the things we talked about earlier with Boston and, and some of the challenges, Adam Jones, different issues. So that's, that's what I'm hoping to develop. I've talked to universities a little bit about uh, sports anthropology. I, I guest lectured at Duke at one point doing that. And um, so I don't know what, they, what turns into an actual job and how it works out with um, you know, life after ESPN, so to speak. But I, I fortunately have time to figure it out. And while I'm doing that, I'm a little league coach and enjoying being a husband and a parent who was already home a lot anyway, but now I'm home a lot more and it's, it's wonderful. You know, I have an eight-year-old, seven-year-old, a five-year-old, a one-year-old. Wow. My wife is on the board of education in Hartford, Connecticut. She is amazing and so gifted with a legal background. She's an attorney, barred in three states, watching her do her thing and supporting her. You know, I'm very fortunate. I'm very fortunate to, um, have the life and the career with great parents, a wonderful brother, a great wife, and four healthy children. You know, that, that in and of itself is, is a great accomplishment. So if I can build on it by making the world better, by using writing expressions, a game that I loved, I mean, then I've, I've really hit the jackpot. Well, Doug Glanville, we're very fortunate to have you operating in all of those worlds. Thank you so much for talking today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Learn more about my guest at DougGlanville.com. You'll find show notes and links for this episode and others at TheMediaNarrative.com. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. The theme music was composed and recorded by Matt Jensen. I'm Rob Hoschild. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.